Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. When someone comes to you from a management standpoint and says, is this okay? Can I do this? They're implicitly removing the accountability and responsibility from that decision. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the engineering leadership community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. This is a special two-part episode. If you haven't had a chance to listen to part one yet, I recommend you pause this right now and listen to that episode first. In part two, Darian dives into how to scale your leadership through effective delegation and how to create more trust, ownership, and accountability in your teams through several incredible stories and lessons. Let me introduce you to Darian Shimmy, engineering lead at Square. Darian is an engineering leadership veteran with over 25 years experience, having worked in leadership positions at companies like Weebly, Attensity, and eHarmony. Beyond leading engineering teams, He coaches recreational and competitive level softball teams, and you'll hear several great softball stories later on. Enjoy our conversation with Darian Shimmy. I think in talking about scaling leadership, one of the things that leaders oftentimes say is that we need to work ourselves out of a job, and and you've shared a little bit about the intention Mm -hmm. of how to make that happen. So what do you do after you work yourself out of a job? Like, Should you be worried about job security? Like, What happens then? Yeah, so that that happens a lot because like, and, and I think it's just what people, you know, what yardstick they're using, what they use to measure their value to the organization. But, you know, when you're an individual contributor, it, it's really easy to see your impact, right? You'll get you'll get a task, you'll write some code, you'll go out in production, you'll see customer usage, you'll see metrics and everything go up. And it's like, it's super easy at that point. When you move over to a manager, you're not producing these artifacts like you were before, right? And it's very different. You're like, well, I'm not making this stuff. Maybe my team doesn't need me. Maybe I should fill my day with things so I look busy, right? But when they do that, they end up not delegating. And what they need to do is they need to understand. So like from a delegation and value standpoint, I I, I tend to have like three levels of delegation. Like the first one is you're going to delegate work. You're going to delegate tasks. This was like, you're going to have a mountain to climb and you're going to have your your team come in and you're going to give them the things they need to do to be successful. And then once you start managing managers, then it's, well, I'm now responsible for the project. And my goal is to make sure this project is successful. And I may be working with multiple teams to make that happen. And then at the third level, your responsibility is a business objective. You have a metric that you need to drive to. And nobody cares about the projects that are happening. They care about the metric, right? So from, and what I tell my managers is like, what I'm gonna measure you on is this task, this project, or this metric. Like your goal may be to increase conversion by 25 basis points over the quarter. Do I care about how many projects you get out to get that done? 
I don't. I just want you to hit that target. And once they start understanding that this is how they're measured, right? And I don't, I care less about their day to day. Then they can start focusing on getting people aligned to make that happen. And I say, you know, your value is getting the projects done to achieve a result. And that tends to remove the, I have to still be an IC as a manager. More specifically, a manager's goal is to basically delegate their job away, right? When they do that, they help people grow, as we already talked about. And also, they need to be able to step back. So for me, what I tell people is the sign of a great manager is one who can walk away and the ship can continue sailing. I say, if you had to leave today for six months, what would happen to your teams? Would they fall apart or would they continue to execute? doesn't mean everything will go perfectly well because what managers tend to do is they tend to be the ones that work on problem when, when there are problems. So I, I tell a lot of my teams, I say, I have about 12 teams that are underneath me. And I say, look, I have a lot of teams. I say, if you don't see me, it's not that I don't care. It's that you don't need me. I said, I tend to spend my time where it provides the most value to the organization. And that's usually when there's hot spots and problems or a very high profile project. So I say, if I'm not there, it's okay. That probably means you're doing a great job. I say, if you see me a lot and I'm asking a lot of questions, there may be a problem, right? You may, I may be nervous about something. So for, from my standpoint, you know, I say for a manager, like their goal should always be be able to walk away. Make sure who's going to pick it up when you're not there, who's going to be able to continue with the culture, continue with the quality, continue with the motivation, kind of keep everybody going throughout the entire thing. If the goal is to, to be able to walk away for, for six months, some of the things I think about is there's a lot of trust in that. Like if you're mm -hmm. helping empower people in a way where they can, you know, step away for six months and the, the ship will run without them, there's a, a significant amount of trust involved with that. And I think part of that is then the ability to have real conversations and to tell exactly what's going on. So do you have any thoughts about how to make your team share their real thoughts or their real concerns or provide the real feedback with you or to share that they disagree. Like thinking from a co coaching perspective, yeah. if, you make a, if you make a call that they don't agree with and you've got player resentment. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, let me put it this way. Let's say you had an intern in a meeting with the CEO of a company, any company. And the CEO says, this is what we're going to do. Do you think the intern is going to go and say, excuse me, that's a bad idea? Probably not. You know, when I'm in my meetings with people, I try and get that. Well, there's two ways. So usually in a smaller, more intimate setting, I try and help them understand early on. And I, I say the same thing all the time. And I, I kind of say it in jest, but I, I truly mean it. And I say, I have a lot of bad ideas. And it's your job to let me know what they are, right? I immediately tell them I want them to criticize me. Like, I want you to know when I'm off base, when I make a mistake, when I'm wrong. And I say, feedback is a gift and I value it deeply. So I never, whenever anybody comes to me, some people come to me with anger. Some people come to me with frustrations. Like, I can't believe you said that. And sometimes I'll explain, like, this is what I was thinking. I'm like, I know you don't like the outcome, but this was my intent going into it. You know, other times I'm like, wow, I didn't realize that would bother you so much. I, I, I apologize. Like, I'm sorry. I just, I didn't see that happening. And I always thank them for the feedback that they give me. Not everybody does that, right? Everyone has a different type of personality. And what I found also is like, especially on a brainstorming session, you know, writing is a great equalizer. Sometimes in meetings, if we're just talking, I will throw out an intentionally bad idea to let people know this brainstorming session, I want any idea coming out, right? Like, well, if our lead just can say anything, right? It doesn't have to be a well-baked idea. And again, it's, it gets to that emulation of behavior that's rewarded. 
but it, it is super important to have that trust and that accountability. How do you end up building that trust? And a lot of times there, there's some subtle things that happen that I see. And, you know, you'll, you'll have an IC come to a manager and say, is it okay if I do this? You got to be really careful how you answer. So in, in California, when you get your driver's license, right, when you turn 16, they say, you know, state of California says you can drive a car, but you can't really have anybody under the age of 21 in there with you, right? Unless you have a parent in the front. This is a law that may not be fully followed by everybody. So my daughter called me after getting her license, and this was, you know, a couple months in, and she's in, and we live in a fairly suburban area that, you know, traffic is not very big. I mean, the city of Pleasanton doesn't even have a single parking meter type of thing. And we live about a mile from the school. So she asked me, you know, hey, is it okay if I drive my friend home today? And, you know, I had my opinion on it and I thought about it and I said, if I answer this question, yes. If I say you can drive and something bad happens, I own that outcome. What I ended up telling her was, I said, the state of California trusts you to drive. I trust you to drive. You're going to have to make decisions throughout your driving career. You're going to have to decide whether you're going to speed or not, whether you're going to park illegally, whether you'll come to a full stop or not. I said, I'm not always going to be there. I said, you have to make the call. But when you make the call, you have to own the outcome. You're the one who's responsible for it, not me. And I'm not going to tell you what she decided, but she did make a decision and she did own it. And it's the same thing when someone comes to you from a management standpoint and says, is this okay? Can I do this? They're implicitly removing the accountability and responsibility from that decision. So what I will typically answer is, I don't see anything wrong with it. Let me know how it goes. I'm not giving them approval. I'm not giving them a stamp to say, hey, I don't have to worry about it anymore. They have to worry about it. They have to own it. And that's when you start building the trust. And they say, I'm telling them, I trust you to make this decision. And it's empowering for them to feel that. And they'll tend to own the outcome. And then once you start building this trust over and over again, you hope that they won't be coming to you every time. My daughter has never come to me with a driving-related question in the law since then, because she knows what the answer is going to be. When someone comes to me with a design, I'm like, hey, you need to go vet this with other people, get everyone else to sign off. And I'll probably be okay with it at that point, right? So it's like, it's like, what do they need to do to build consensus? What do they need to do to help understand the direction that they're going to go? Let them own the outcome. Let them own what will come from their direct actions instead of delegating that responsibility to their lead. This feels really relevant and personal to a lot of the conversations that Jerry and I have. I was hoping to get your thoughts on how do you distinguish between empowering people in that way and helping them own the outcome and then providing constructive feedback or direction on a, a project or outcome. Yeah. So like as a lead there, and again, I think it's, it's if you scale your team out. So don't think that you have five, think you have 50 or even 500 people working for you. And it's like, what would be your level of involvement? Your level of involvement at that high level is strategic. It's not tactical. So you want to push as much tactics down and let the team work on it. And this is, you know, Jerry and I have talked about process in the past. And, you know, I'm, I don't like dictating process. I like the team to find the inefficiency and come up with process themselves. They'll, it'll tend to be much lighter weight and they'll tend to own it and not resent the fact that I'm telling them, make them go through this bureaucratic <laughs> hate to get something done. It's like, well, you guys came up with it. If you don't like it, you guys change it. It's not mine, right? It's to make you more effective, right? 
So, you know, when I look at something, I want to make sure it's in line with our strategy, right? So if someone came to me and said, here's my design doc, and I'm like, well, this is using a whole set of technologies that we're, we really don't want to adopt, and here's why we can't go down that path. And that's where I'm going to put up a few, you know, I don't want to say roadblocks, but bumpers. Again, this is where you're trying to direct that energy and say, like, you need to work within our frameworks. You need to work within our timelines. You need to work within our budgets, right? That's what I have control over. But how you actually go about implementing it, like the team has to own that. You guys have to be the ones, you know, I'll put some constraints, just like driving. We put some constraints for some time. There's a car, it's how far you can go and stuff like that. And it's the same thing on, on projects, right? Here are your constraints, here are your walls that you have to work in, the parameters, but it's up to you to figure out how to get these things done. And it may not be the way I would have done it, but it doesn't make it wrong. There's a lot of different ways to achieve a result. It may not even be the optimal way, but it might be good enough. They, they say that you should focus on the things that matter most. And if the, there's a lot of little details out there that I don't concern myself with, it's okay. Right? I don't have to be in the nitty gritty of every little thing going on. You need to trust the team because this is when they have the safe space to make a mistake. And they have a mistake to grow. Like maybe that library wasn't a good idea. Maybe I didn't vet it properly enough or you know, when I, when I actually started implementing it, I had all these other issues or the, I didn't check the performance. There's a lot of things I can come up with that you may not even be able to, to see in a design doc or when someone's communicating to you. So it's, but when they own it, the next time they'll say, well, I got bit by this, you know, now I have the experience to go forward. So there's a notion of the what and the how. So the manager can chose the what. You can provide mm -hmm. a lot of guidance on that, but give the freedom to the team to decide the how. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the, the tricky part is when you disagree on the what. Yep. Right. And that, that, and that's where it takes, you know, maybe some salesmanship to really present it in a way that resonates. And, you know, like anything, practice makes perfect. When I have a new direction or strategy, I don't go to an all hands meeting and say, this is what we're doing. I will tend to go to one person as, you know, that I trust, that I know will give me raw, honest feedback and say, let me run something by you. And I, I give my speech and they're like, wow, that, that, that just didn't resonate. I'm like, okay, let me try again and try again. And you keep honing your message over and over and over again until you get it right. I mean, communicating is a skill, just like batting, pitching, throwing, anything else. It's something that you have to continually exercise. You have to continually get better at and you have to continually hone throughout your, your career. You're never going to be perfect at communicating. You don't know what people are going to, you know, respond to. And especially when you're talking, when you're talking one-on-one, -on -one, you get to read their feedback, right? I can see their eyes. I can see their body temperature. I can see like a lot of things going on right there. And as that starts to grow, it becomes harder and harder. If you're talking to, you know, 50, 500 people, you look out in the crowd, you can't even see everybody. You don't know if they're listening or not. People in the back are probably on their phones doing something entirely different. I'll, I'll watch a recording later, right? At twice the speed. <laughs> so, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, honing your message helps a lot and it really helps, you know, you want to make sure that it, it resonates with a variety of people. So I would say like, also when, when you're working on your messaging, make sure that you're not just talking to the same people over and over again, not talking to the same seniority of people. Make sure that the person who may not have heard the full strategy earlier hears it now. And, you know, being repetitive, you know, there's this thing in, in technology that says, don't repeat yourself, right? Where you want to reuse code and everything like that. In management, that is the worst thing possible. You want to repeat yourself over and over again. 
over and over and over and over and over again. There's no end. You, you need to say the same message over and over again so it sinks in. They need to be able to, to recite what you said over and over again. And getting people to be able to basically replace you on the messaging should be the goal, right? One of the things that I think Apple has done an amazing job of is they've made everyone who buys their product a salesperson. They all say, oh, look at the retina display. Okay, sure. My mom doesn't even know what that is, but she'll, she'll say it. She understands it. She knows it's valuable. And it's the same thing here. You get everyone to start, they all get the talking points from hearing you and they can start reciting these talking points, right? And they can start you know, telling other people. And then once you have the organization that is able to do that, then they really understand the strategy. They really believe in it. And they're really going to help execute towards it, even if it goes off the path a little bit. They'll stay within the bumpers, but it, you know, it's a path to get from point A to point B that really matters. And going back to the the process question, I remember in your early conversation, you shared a really interesting example of how you simplify the process of filing expenses. And that just give a really good story people can emulate in the future. Yeah. So I don't want to get myself in any trouble here, but there, there's certain things that, you know, will help instill trust in people. And I remember this was back at Weebly. We gave everybody a credit card. We got a company credit card with very little restrictions or, or policy or anything to, to, to what to do with it. I had people come up, hey, I got this credit card. What am I supposed to do with it? I'm like, well, you need to make that call. I said, you're welcome to ask me if you're not sure, but you need to make the decision. I'll say it's not for personal, it's for business use. But beyond that, you're the one that needs to decide whether this business use is important or not. I have people today come up to me and go, I want to go to a conference. And it may not be perfectly fitting. I'm like, if this is business related, it's approved. Don't worry about it. They don't have to justify it to me. They don't have to explain it to me. I said, I'm trusting you that if you're going to go and say this is business related, it's business related. I haven't had anyone abuse that. I haven't had anyone try and take advantage of it. I think they, when you, when you put up a lot of process that is designed to prevent people from abusing something, they're going to try and either push to the limit or figure out a way around it find a loophole, something like that. But when you give this implicit trust, it is just an incredible amount of trust. It becomes almost a burden at some point. They don't want to violate it. Like the company trusts me with X, Y, and Z. And I want to make sure that I don't violate that. And they're going to, they may even, you know, optimize farther away from it. You know, it's like, well, a book, yeah, it's learning. I, I need a book to do my job. Nobody's going to argue with me buying a book. But do I really need it? Can I, is there a book on the shelf I can use? Is there an online resource? Like maybe they're going through this head. Maybe it's not, I'm not sure. But I, I tell people, make your decisions as if you own the company. And if you, if you need this to be successful, then you have to get it, right? There shouldn't be any question about it. But it, it, it's that understanding and trust. And it's little things like that. It's other things like even with travel policy. Someone uh, says, you know, I said, well, I'll, I'm going to give you implicit travel to, you know, if you need to go to another office, you have to go to the other office. You don't have to ask me every time. I tell people, don't tell me every time you take a day off, take your day off. Don't worry about it. You don't need it. You, you shouldn't come to me for approval for something like that. Like I trust that if you need time off, you'll take time off. And that's the end of it. Even if we have something important going on, I'm going to assume that you really needed that day more than you needed to come in the office. And I think where the trust really excels is when there's even a lack of accountability. When they know I'm not going to come up to them and go, why did you take that day off? Or why did you go travel? Why did you go to that conference? Why did you buy that book? That book was on math. Maybe they're trying something new. I don't know. I don't know. But it's that trust that go, hey, he's trusting me with all these things, right? And they don't want to violate that trust. 
it's a huge leverage that by placing trust in other people, it just triggers a lot of really good behavior that you otherwise possibly wouldn't be able to get. But it takes a risk yeah. of trusting people because people may abuse the you know trust you give them, or they may have bad behaviors. But without trying it, then you lose the opportunity for someone to really doing the right thing. And so there's a cost of every time you try to verify something or <laughs> like micromanage, there's Im- implicit cost, and mm-hmm. that's not visible to you most of the time. Yeah. I mean, for me, what I want to optimize on is what we deliver to our customers, right? That, that's, that, that for me is why we're here, you know, what we're trying to do. All these other little things around it are distractions. As much as I can like push those away and just focus on delivery, that's where I think we're going to succeed in the long run. And again, you're right. Like that, that trust is when they, when you start trusting people with those fringe things and then start trusting them on the designs the implementations and the code reviews, it goes a long way. It changes the mentality where they start thinking as you would think. And they start thinking more from a strategic standpoint, making sure that they're making the best. And I've had people where we've told them, I said, this is how we want this feature to work. And they come back and said, this isn't going to work. And this is why. And that's what I want. I want the pushback. I want the friction in the process so we can come up with the best result for our customers. I remember, I, I, this is a long time ago, I had one engineer who I will say just did an outstanding job on the implementation, tons of unit tests, basically flew through QA, no problems at all. Customers hated it. He came up to me and said, hey, I did a really good job on that project. I said, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> so customers didn't like it. I said, you don't get any points for like writing good code that is not ever going to be used. I said, I appreciate the, the effort there, but what we needed from you was some pushback saying, hey, as I'm going through this, this doesn't make sense. This is going to be too confusing and put some pressure on them to make sure that, hey, even when you're told something like this is the design is how it needs to go, it's not enough just to implement it blindly, right? We need everybody thinking. We need everybody trying to figure out a way to make things better. I remember that, that time that resonated really well with the engineer of, of what his role should be because he had, a, he had a vision of his role was just to go ahead and do what he was told. And this is what really helped him open up and realize that his job was much more than he ever thought it would be. And that relates back to the thing you mentioned earlier that you encourage people to think you're the owner of the company. And by taking that perspective, you can see things in the same lens as the CEO of the company, Mm -hmm. the founder's company. Yeah, absolutely. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. And going back to the communication challenge you mentioned earlier, when communicating with like either one person, especially a larger uh, group of people, and being able to find out how they received the message is really important oh, and yeah. also make adjustment in, the re- in real time. I remember in earlier conversations we had, you have quite a few examples of how you were able to apply that mm-hmm. and drive an impact. And can you share some tips and examples so that people can uh, can learn from that? Yeah, absolutely. So 
when you talk to someone, right, it is super important to be able to read them, to be able to understand basically how they're feeling. If I have a one-on-one with anyone or I'm talking to anybody in any capacity, my goal is to make them feel comfortable. That's my number one goal. If they're comfortable, we can have a conversation. If they have fear, anxiety, or anything else, it's not going to work. So when I first meet with somebody, understanding where their level is. So some people are going to come in with high energy, or they may come in with pride. Hey, I just did something. Let me share. You know, a little little kid come up, look what I drew, right? Like, great job, right? So when people come in with high energy, my goal is to exceed their energy level. So because you wouldn't believe what just happened. Like, tell me, tell me, what was it, right? Let me help build it up even more. If somebody comes in depressed, angry, anxiety, fear, you'll see it. They'll come in, they'll be quiet. God, I got some really bad news. You're like, gosh, what was it? And I'm being genuine, but you like, you need to, in those cases, you need to drop below them. You need to help them open up. You need to make them feel comfortable where they can share with you. They have a safe place to share their experience with you. And even during a talk, especially if we have to give some hard feedback sometimes, you need to be able to read the person. And there's little, little tricks that come up, right? Like when they come in, are they making eye contact with you or not? If they don't want to be there, they'll tend to look down, look away. Little Like looking at blink rate, people who tend to blink fast. And this is a great thing. Watch politicians talk. The ones that are very comfortable, their eyes are open the whole time. And people joke they don't blink at all. People who are terrified, they're blinking like crazy. I look for people when they start fidgeting in their chair, if they start sweating. You know, sometimes, you know, I, ha- I-, I-, I periodically I'd want to have a one-on-one with, you know, someone who doesn't report to me, right? Someone who's like a few, a few managers in between me. Sometimes I think they think I'm going to fire them. And I'm like, I just wanted to chat. <laughs> and I'll tell them, like, I can see the life draining out of them as we're walking into the conference room. And I'm like, there's nothing bad. Like, I just want to say hi. And then we come in the room, they're like, it's just stonewalled. And it's, it's kind of making them comfortable opening up. I like to share a lot of my personal experiences, things I do outside the office with people. And a lot of people think I'm just being chatty and wasting time, but I'm trying to help them open up. I'm trying to open my kimono a little bit and say, this is what I did. These are the mistakes I've made. Let me share some struggles I'm having, you know, and then that hopefully will let them open up a little bit, especially with a lot of engineers are introverted. They don't like sharing, you know, and I think from a, from a question standpoint, and, and a lot of parents may understand this is that when you're sitting down at dinner, your kids come in, they sit down from a long day at school. There's one question you never ask. It's like, you never say, how was your day? Because the answer is always going to be fine. (laughs) And then where do you go from there? So you ask a more engaging question. What was the best part of your day today? What did you learn that you didn't think you were going to learn? Who did you eat lunch with? You know, what's going on with so-and-so, right? Were all your teachers there today? These are the questions that provoke thought. These are the the questions that will evoke an answer from people. If you don't want to have a conversation because you go, is everything, how's everything going? That's okay. Great. I'll see you later. You provided no value. That was a polite way to exit. Asking either an IC or a manager, like who's performing really well on your team right now? Who surprised you in the past two weeks? 
These are hard questions for anyone to answer. It requires some thought because they're not prepared, right? And they may not know the answer. Who's struggling that you wouldn't have expected to struggle? What, what keeps you up at night? These are all things that can have like two hour discussions with, with just that one question. This is how you start pulling information out of people. I think from a manager standpoint, your goal is to get people to open up, is you get people to share, share their experiences. And some people, it's tough and they, they'll, they'll avoid it at all costs and you have to keep trying to find the angle and you have to learn that every single person is different and that when you find a solution that works for one person, it may not work on somebody else and you need to change gears and you need to change your behavior, your tone, your body language to make them feel comfortable so they can open up eventually. Talk a lot about the one-on-one scenario. What do you do at a, a group meeting? So you have a group of people that you want to have a effective communication. Mm-hmm. You want them to provide inputs and probably even make decisions. How, but as a leader, uh, a lot of people just feel so natural to come in and share, like, this is what I think. What's your take on that? So I've had meetings where I've asked people above me not to come. And I've told them, I said, if you're in this meeting, my team is not going to talk. This happens a lot with retrospectives. If the CEO is in the room during a retrospective, you're not going to get any feedback. People aren't going to open up. They're not going to be critical. You're not going to get the raw meat that you want. And there's even times where I tell them, I ask people, should I be in this meeting? And my leads know when I ask that question, I want to make sure if I'm present, I'm not changing the flow. So just even being there, ignoring what the manager will say, my lips can be sealed in a meeting. The fact that I'm physically present will change the discussion that has taken place. That's problem number one. Problem number two is if you express your opinion too early, you're going to get a lot of, oh yeah, yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. Or you're going to help shape their minds. So it's super important that early on that you hear from everybody. And it's, you know, I would say when you're in a meeting, even if you're not the one leading it, it's your responsibility to be a good host, right? And a good host is one where everybody knows their place, everybody feels comfortable, and you need to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to speak. You're always going to, if you have, a, let's say, a room of like 15 or 20 people, you're going to have, you know, a small minority, they're going to do a lot of the talking, and you have a small minority that won't say anything. And it's your job to make sure that everybody has a voice and to call on people. You know, look, if someone is there and shakes their head, that doesn't say anything, go, hey, you know, what were you thinking? Like, I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're on board with this. Like, it's okay. Like, help me understand what I'm missing. Tell me where I'm not seeing how this is going to work. And that's when they start opening up, right? And it's the question of, if you went to them and said, do you agree with this? Yes, I do. Okay. That's a safe answer, right? I think when you're having a meeting, when people speak, they're putting something at risk and the risk could be, you know, somebody shooting down their idea. It could be the risk of making a mistake. It could be a risk of embarrassment. The best people are in meetings who have no fear. They don't care. In some sense, not caring is a great asset, right? Because you can leave it all out. I don't care what people are going to think. I'm going to speak my mind respectfully, but I'm going to speak my mind. And I want them to hear what I have to say. And I could be wrong and I'll learn from that and be better next time. So when you're in there, the first thing is decide whether you should go or not. The second thing is, Definitely don't offer your opinion too early in the conversation. The third thing is make sure everybody has a chance to speak before you start. Because the best thing for a manager is to go in a meeting, sit back and listen, and have them make a decision that you would have made or that one that you agree with. That's like the, the perfect scenario. You, don't have, you didn't have to do any work. 
You basically went there, you listened, and they came out with the same outcome without your input. That should be the goal. It shouldn't be you going in and go, hey, this is the direction we're going to go. Now, there are some times where you need to frame it with a strategic. So you may go in and say, hey, guys, we need to focus on quality. What ideas do you have, right? You're setting the stage. You're setting some boundaries. But it's up to them to figure out what it is. And no manager ever goes in a meeting like that without ideas. I guarantee you. They've thought about it either through walking, taking a shower, before they go to sleep. They have all these ideas already. But if they go out and say, we're going to take care of quality by doing one, two, three, and four, well, okay. Now they're not thinking about it. Now they're going to just, they don't own the outcome now. Now it's me. So if these four things I suggested don't achieve the goal, I own that. It's my failure. Whereas if I said, our goal is quality, and the team says, I only care about you figuring out how to improve quality, and here's the metrics we're going to use, I don't even like coming up with metrics. Let them come up with the metrics. You know, the first thing on something like that would be, tell me where we are today. Let them go off. And when they come back, you, you look at it and say, hey, did you think of this? Did you think of that? Again, it's one of those things to make sure that they've thought about everything, not necessarily where you're trying to micromanage, right? You're trying to kind of help, their, help, help them explore the space a little bit more. But then it's up to them to execute. And it's up to them to come. Like, so they've said, they've agreed on what the metric is. They've agreed on what the tactics are. And they've done the execution. They own the ownership. No other way around it. And then they can come back and say, hey, we've exceeded our goal or we fall, we fell short, but this is what we learned. And this is what we're going to do to make up for it. And a manager in that whole scenario, I did very little, right? I'm there at every stage to make sure things are going well and I can help course correct along the way. Someone may say, hey, we need to get this software in. I'm like, well, that's $100,000 a year. I'm like, it's not in our budget and this is why we can't do it, right? And that's where I'm going to kind of, Again, put the boundaries in, but then they own everything else. A lot of what you said so far is the realization that being a manager, actually, you can have very easy life by doing the right thing. Otherwise, you can take, out, take on a lot and make yourself miserable and the team miserable too. One last question about communication. So when you're in a group setting for communication, like a meeting, how do you collect information about like, like body language or physical expression, how do you read a room? So I, I remember I took play production like in high school or something and I was doing a play and I remember I was so nervous when I went up there. I was terrified. Like I did not like public speaking at all. And I remember when I got up there and I looked out entire, the entire stage and this is well before cell phones or anything else like that. We used to pass notes on paper and I looked down the stage and there wasn't a single person looking at me. And I'm like, wow, they don't really care. I have nothing to lose. And ever since then, I've been very comfortable <laughs> speaking in a large group. So going in, I like to have some confidence in what I'm saying to make sure the message resonates, right? Number one, so I previewed it with a few people. So I kind of know talking points and things and I can kind of parrot myself over and over again. But, you know, it, it, it is super important. It, it's, it's one of those things where when, when I'm delivering a message in, in a large setting, right? looking in the eyes of people, not talking over them, but talking to them, helping explain to them, seeing this is why lately with a lot of the Slack communication and the cameras are off, it's really hard to see if they're listening and if it's resonating with them. And, you know, you look for little things. Like I just said something, I got a head nod, right? Makes me feel good. These are like the, the, the unconscious cues that I'm, I'm going. A smile goes a long way, right? A head nod, you know, these are all like little things in a group that you can kind of pick up 
and start building on. So, you know, when I start giving a message, if I am not getting the feedback I want and I start changing a little, and then, you know, it, it's, I think the best way to explain it is when you, you know, as a kid, you have to, you know, blindfold yourself, you have to go find something, you start walking and they're like, hot, hot, warm, cold, cold, cold. And they're trying to direct you through like using some words. And it's the same thing. I'm trying to get from point A to point B in a conversation. And I'm trying to see what is resonating. And when I start getting that positive feedback, I will start, you know, going deeper on that and spending more time on that. When I'm getting questions, it's a great feedback tool. And a lot of times, if I can't read the room, I will ask, I'm like, is this making sense? Anybody have any questions? Let me see if I can start getting some conversation going. You know, I always tell people like, this is a conversation we're having. I need you to contribute as well. It's not just me up here talking, right? And getting that feedback is one of the things that, you know, A, when you get a question, you understand what points were missed. You understand what they want to hear. And you also know that they were paying attention. Everybody has questions. And I put the fear in people saying, when I start saying, I said, are there any questions? I said, if you don't have any questions, I'll ask you some questions. And I typically start in the back of the room. People in the back of the room are in the back of the room for a reason. They don't want to be called on. Never call on the person right in front. They have it too easy. So, you know, those are a lot of those, the little clues that we have coming up. Great. Uh, closing question. What are the leaders that inspired you in the past that have made a huge impact on you? So when I was at eHarmony was founded by a clinical psychologist named uh, Neil Clark Warren. And, you know, when I started eHarmony, we're 20 plus people and, you know, everybody kind of knew everybody. And when Neil talked to you, he had this ability to make you feel like you were the most important person in the world. There is nothing else that could be, you could be at a huge party. And when he came up and talked to you, when he shook your hand, when he looked in your eyes, when he asked you, how's the family doing? It just made your heart feel warm. I've never met anybody to make me feel so comfortable, so good about myself when I was talking to somebody than him. And anytime I talk to somebody, I try and be like him. I'm like, I want people to feel that way when they talk to me. I want people to feel that comfortable, that open. I thought I could have told him anything. I mean, he's a clinical psychologist. That's his job. I get it. But still... It wasn't in a professional setting. It could have been at a social hour. And I'm like, I'm like, how does he do this? And it wasn't just me that felt that way. My wife felt that way. Everybody talks to him like, it's the greatest conversation I've had in my life. <laughs> and he just left feeling so good. It's like a Mr. Rogers just feel good. I felt good about me. I felt good about the world. I felt good about my work. I felt good about everything. I felt no matter how bad something was in my life, if I talked to him, I'd feel great. To this day, I don't know what magic he had that made it happen, but it's something I feel I've been chasing ever since. And it's one of those things that I'm grateful, and it may sound silly, I'm grateful I was able to experience what that was like. And I know if anybody experienced it, they would want to be like that, to be able to make someone feel like that. Complete strangers. It was amazing. Wow. Let us know when you do find out the magic. <laughs> we can do entirely episode for that. It also indicates that as a leader, every interaction you have with these people, how small that is, is an opportunity to make a real impact. Yeah, there, 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 I mean, I'll leave you with one story. So there was, so I had somebody uh, a couple of years ago come up to me and said, you know, they're, 
they were doing, this gets back to reading the room a little bit. Get, they came up to me and said, hey, you know, I'm doing these phone screens for engineers during the interview process. Having a really hard time connecting. Like, I can't see them. They're tense. They're nervous. We only have 45 minutes. I have to get through all this stuff. I go, we just, we just getting off on the right foot. I said, hmm, I said, try this. I said, when you get on the phone with them and you say hello, I said, smile. That was all I said. I said, hi. It comes out different. It's a different feel. I'm like, give it a shot. And a lot of times people come up to me, ask me a question, and I never really hear the feedback afterwards. He actually came up to me six months later. He said, that was the greatest piece of advice I ever heard. He goes, every single call I have right now is getting off on the right foot. We're much more open. And I think it makes the person who's doing the high smiling feel better as well. And it's just setting the tone for how this conversation is going to go. It's going to be upbeat. It's going to be positive. They don't have to be nervous. They don't have to be scared, right? A smile goes a long way. Well, thanks so much for spending time with us. Like, I like the stories you shared. It's really inspiring and actionable. People can relate and be able to apply back to their own teams. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me. It's been a lot of fun and it's been a joy as well. Here's a recap of the key takeaways from part two. First, we're going to talk about delegation and trust at scale. Your goal as a senior leader is to delegate decision-making as far down the organization as possible. When you trust people extensively, from the fringe things like expenses, all the way to code reviews, it changes their mentality to think more strategically and make the best decision. There are three levels of delegation. The first level are the tasks and the day-to-day -day work. The next level are the projects. And the third level are the business objectives, the metrics that you're driving towards. Have the team own the process and implementation. Let your team own the outcome from their direct actions. The result is often more lean and creates more ownership in your culture. How do you reinforce trust and ownership? Well, here's how you can talk about it. I trust you to make X decision. Make that decision. When you do, you're responsible for and own that outcome. And remember, there's a cost every time that you verify something. Placing extensive trust in people often motivates people to not want to violate that trust. Our next takeaways are all about how to communicate at scale and one-on-one. -on -one. First, be repetitive. The goal is for people to recite what you've said and replace you as the messenger. When they can repeat what you say, then they'll really understand the strategy and message. The next takeaway is all about how to get people to open up. Exceed or match the energy of others. When you meet people where they're at, it helps them open up so you, then you can get more valuable feedback and input. Ask more engaging questions that require thought, like who's performing really well on your team, or who surprised you in the past two weeks, or what's keeping you up at night, or even who's struggling that you didn't expect. The next takeaway is how to reduce fear and get more input from your team. Well, first, decide if you as the manager should even go to the meeting or not. Your presence makes an unconscious impact on the input of everybody else on the team. And don't offer your opinion too early. And lastly, make sure everyone has a chance to talk before you speak. Our last takeaway is all about how to read the room. When speaking to a crowd, look people in the eyes, not over them and look for the subtle physical cues for feedback and if your message is resonating. 
And remember, the simple act of smiling sets the tone of your conversation. We'd like to give a special thanks to Mesmer, the exclusive accessibility partner of the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Mesmer's AI bots automate mobile app accessibility testing to ensure your app is always accessible to everybody. To jumpstart your accessibility and inclusion initiative, visit mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. You can also follow the link in our show notes. That's mesmerhq.com forward slash ELC. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure that you click subscribe if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or follow if you're listening on Spotify. And if you love the show, we also have a ton of other ways to stay involved with the engineering leadership community. To stay up to date and learn more about all of our upcoming events, our peer groups, and other programs that are going on, head to sfelc.com. That's sfelc.com. Or you can also follow the link in our show notes. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast. Thank you.